This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Dr. Miller is back uh, to speak about adverse childhood experiences and associations with uh, developmental disabilities. Dr. Miller. Well, thank you. That was a short break. (laughs) Um, I will uh, have to mention that though I work for the California EPA, that none of my comments today represent the state of California in any way. Um, and as far as disclosures, uh, you know, I do get funding for our pediatric environmental health specialty unit from uh, two federal agencies, the ATSDR, Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, at this part of the CDC now, and the U.S. Uh, uh, EPA. And... Um, I think this is the third time in about six years that I've been honored to be invited here. And um, these, are, these are objectives that I put out, you know, these very kind of specific things. But really, uh, what, I, what, I, what I'm here is to introduce issues about the environment as might be relevant to people that are involved in dealing with uh, various developmental issues and disabilities. And, and I think it's, it's, if I could get some interest, then what you do with that as a, as a profession or a group of professions, you know, that's for your, you people. I, I, I don't really have that particular answer. So this is the third time around in a, in a few years. Uh, I'd like to thank Lucy for inviting me, you know, again. So if I do it enough times, one of these times I'll get it right. <laughs> the perspective that I have, and we've, I think I want to introduce here, is this ecologic framework for health. So this is what I would think of as truly integrative medicine. So things happen that are important from the molecular level, the cellular level, organ system, and the individual, but that the persons involved are, are nested within their family, their home, their community, and society in general. And those influences also impact our health and interact with chemical exposures that we might have. And then these events happen over the life course. So from preconception through old age, and then even in some cases there's evidence of multi-generational uh, impacts, just as there are in social, uh, in the social world. So, so I think that we need to be considering and thinking about these things as a, as a total uh, 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 unit. So one, one of the first concepts that I think is important is critical windows of development. So there are times when children may be particularly susceptible and, um, and, and, and the kinds of things that might impact their development include nutrition, uh, access to health care, social stress, stressors including racism, 
and you know other other things. Uh, you know, I think you're all familiar with uh, the adverse uh, developmental consequences of of uh, early major stressors in in the house. You know, but finances, chemical exposures, educational support, etc. These are all these all are important, and they interact. I think that's that's the key. So uh, critical windows actually occur throughout uh, childhood, and uh, there, there's windows of vulnerability. Okay. Um, here's here's an example. So here, this is a stress example. Now these they took adult women. And they went back and got information about their prenatal time period when they were a fetus. Okay? And they, they used some very simple measures to look at, at uh, major stressors, ones that would not probably be uh, remembered incorrectly. You know, uh, a divorce of your parents, you know, uh, uh, a a death close in the family, refugee status, things like that. And then they looked at these adult women and measured a number of things, and they saw an increased response to stress. The hypothalamic pituitary axis was functioning differently, increased uh, reaction to stress. They had uh, uh, a bias toward a, an allergic phenotype, TH two phenotype. They had increases in a bunch of inflammatory markers. These are adult women, and the thing that they were looking at was prenatal stress. So, so something that happens early can affect you into adulthood um, without showing anything before that. I mean, these are, these are biomarkers that we're looking at. These aren't something you're going to see directly. And, and, that, and this relates to an important concept called allostasis. So you're all familiar with homeostasis, how we regulate our bodies physiologically. Well, allostasis takes that idea and says, well, the way we do that is by these active uh, mechanisms and that those, those are how we adapt. And that's good, but then think of it like if your thyroid gland may be ceasing to function well, you're, you're able to kick out from your brain enough thyroid-stimulating hormone to flog your thyroid gland for a while and keep your thyroid hormone levels normal. But eventually, you get uh, goiter, and eventually you may end up the, you know, with a not totally non-functioning thyroid gland. So, so that's, that's over the buildup over time of these adaptive mechanisms can result in harm. That's called your allostatic load. Um, and these, that's mediated by neuroendocrine, immune, auto, uh, uh, autonomic nervous system mechanisms. These are all things that are important and important for adaptation, and it has a cost. So the, a person who developed this idea, uh, largely uh, Bruce McEwen, talks about it, stress getting under your skin. And the results 
can be metabolic, cardiovascular, immune system, and behavioral dysregulation, so neurodevelopmental things. Um, There's also windows of opportunity. So those are vulnerability. There are times when, given uh, a a positive environment, you might be able to mitigate some of these issues. So so one of the ways that lead uh, causes problems, there are multiple, but one of the ways is by impacting the NMDA receptors in the hippocampus. These are associated with learning and memory. These are glutamate receptors. And um, uh, lead and stress are potent inhibitors of these. So so this is just to say that a chemical and stress uh, work not by, not only do they have the same effect, they work by the same mechanism and they could be additive to each other. Well, this is a beautiful experiment where uh, Tom Giarte took a, rodents and he exposed them to lead at what's equivalent to 10 micrograms per deciliter in our children as neonates and then followed them to old age. So uh, as adults, the, number, the lead exposure results in decreased number of NMDA receptors as, long as, as well as decreases in learning and memory. Also, uh, brain-derived uh, neurotrophic factor. So, so that, that, in alone, that alone is interesting, but then he took and divided the lead exposed into two groups along with the control. And, and one group he put in, in an enriched environment. So for a rodent, that's you know, more other friends to play with in the cage and a wheel and maybe a few other things, a little bit more handling. Um, those in the enriched environment performed in their memory and learning the same as the controls that didn't get any lead. And their NMDA receptor activity was the same as controls. So, so th- this indicates there's an opportunity during you know, this developmental period to at least mitigate some of the, the negative effects. So this talk really was designed around the, in part around the idea of resilience in children and so that's part of it, that we're, we, we, we have opportunities to uh, uh, these windows that if you let them go by, then things might be fixed. Uh, so the brain-derived neurotrophic factor, same kind of picture as that NMDA receptor. It's altered, lowered by depression and okay, these chemicals, methylmercury and uh, BPA. These are common. It's elevated by antidepressant and by physical exercise. And there's studies looking at uh, combining treatment for stroke victims with intensive, both intensive physiotherapy and behavioral therapy, and then with or without the antidepressant. The antidepressant increases this ability of the neurons to connect, in a sense, because that's the function of uh, 
brain-derived neurotrophic factor is neurogenesis, and, and it, so it, it helps to increase the, the adaptation. So why do I bring it up? Well, I think that, that the idea is that there's, there are chemical and social stressor factors that both interact, and there are things and critical windows when you might make some difference. So there's, how about in, with disabilities? What do we know? Well, not a lot. In the environmental health world doesn't have, I mean, it has these kind of things. We have this exposure that might affect, you know, attention deficit disorder incidents or something like that. But, but how about, you know, in children or even adults that have any kind of disability, you know, is the exposure to methylmercury more or less of a concern. Well, we don't really have much information on that. Uh, but here's one, one study that looked at uh, this testing in uh, North Carolina, I believe, that they do uh, exit testing at certain grade levels. And, and um, to make it really simple, this bottom line here is, is uh, the, in, the impact of increasing your blood lead from one to five micrograms per deciliter. And, 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 and these are, these are uh, the lower scoring on the exit exams, and these are the higher exams. The impact of lead on those who were already higher scoring is less than those that were in the lower scoring group. So I think that, that, that uh, you know, to me, that's an indication that, yes, you should be paying attention to some of this stuff. You know, this, this is potentially important. So preconception, we know that people are exposed. Preconception, they can find uh, uh, PCBs, polychlorinated by phenols, for example, in the fluid ar around the egg. You know, they, uh, we know that... Uh, Sperm can be affected by exposure to various chemicals. In uh, the work that I do with childhood leukemia, paternal smoking preconception is associated with increased risk of childhood leukemia. So, so that indicates there's some germline uh, alteration. Um, I think prenatal mother's health and mother's chemical exposures we're, we're pretty familiar with. I don't think I have to say too much about that. But you know, certainly nutrition, health, and medicines are important. But here's, here's a, a study that I think is, is pretty impactful. They looked at chlorpyrifos, which uh, was the most used insecticide in households uh, up until uh, around 2004 when those uses were removed partially because of the, these studies, um, but is still used in ag agriculture. And, and the, they measured cord blood levels of chlorpyrifos, and then they followed up these children, and they, they, they have three and seven years of, of, of follow-up. And so the more highly exposed, still, this is not high, this is New York City residences. These are not highly exposed people. These are kind of average exposures. There were uh, delays in psychomotor and mental developmental indexes uh, was related to uh, uh, you know behavior checklist 
symptoms of ADHD and PDD, and there were declines in working memory and full-scale IQ at seven years of age. Well, that alone is, is, is concerning, right? I mean, but then they did this follow-up looking where they did these functional MRIs, or very, very sophisticated MRI kind of exam, and just looked at volume. And, and there were these volumetric changes in the surface of the brain in a number of, of areas in those with the higher exposures compared to, to uh, lesser exposure. Um, so remember what we talked about with ADHD, PDD, uh, these behavioral things. So here's the areas that there, there was its increase in uh, surface matter underlying white matter largely, which uh, according to the paper, you might con possibly consider that to be like scarring for some cells. Uh, but the, so you get the posterior, middle, temporal, inferior, postlateral, gyri, bilateral. What's that associated with? Attention and receptive language, you know, superior frontal gyrus, et cetera, social cognition, uh, gyrus rectus, reward, emotion, inhibitory control, uh, executive function. So these areas are physically different in the children with these prenatal exposures, you know, when they're, they're older children. Um, so um, childhood has multiple windows. Things are developing at different times. When you have rapid cell development, uh, you know, that's a time period where uh, a chemical or potentially a social stressor might, might be more uh, impactful. Uh, I think it's important... Uh, you know, I'm trying to stay on mostly neurocognitive kinds of issues. Uh, air pollution, you know, now there's increasing number of studies that show that air pollutants are associated with a variety of problems, including some, now I don't think this is conclusive, but some that would, would put autism in a, you know, a higher risk factor with your air pollution, including studies from the MIND Institute. Um, so, uh, but things that have been associated in studies, developmental delay, inattention, ADHD, anxiety, uh, actual volume changes in the brain, and neuroinflammatory markers. So a variety of things. Uh, and for PAHs, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, those are things that anytime you burn things, including fuel in your cars or your diesel trucks, you're creating, creating these and we're breathing them in. There's, there's not only an impact on uh, cognitive and behavioral outcomes, but, but there's evidence of an interaction between uh, that and maternal hardship, family hardship. So uh, in, in the environmental world, just like in, in the infectious disease world, we want to think about prevention. And uh, actually, let me go back one slide. I want to point out tender, the targeting environmental neurodevelopmental risks. Uh, um, this is a, a group of, that has been convened uh, by uh, Irva Hertz-Picciotta, who's an epidemiologist at the Mind Institute at UC Davis, um, and uh, the Learning Disabilities Association have been really involved. There's clinical, uh, like, 
many different nursing, uh, physician, and other health groups uh, in, involved, the researchers that are doing a lot of this understanding. And, and they've put out some statements, and they're, they're continuing to work on this. Uh, Leslie and I have both been, been involved, um, and I, I have their website at the end. Of, I think it's important. So, and, and what, their idea is we should be trying to prevent these things. Specifically, we need to add to, like, the air pollution discussion, well, this impacts neurocognitive development. This impacts things that you are all concerned about, you know. Can we do something about it? Well, there's not good, ev there's not good studies. There's one study in China, but, it, you know, kind of marginal. There's, there's about neurocognitive outcomes with decreasing exposure to air pollutants. But this is lung development, and this is the Los Angeles air basin. So you have uh, particulate matter and ozone, which decreased fairly dramatically over the 20 years from 1990 to 2010. And, and the group that studies this down in, in the L.A. area had three separate cohorts that were growing up during different time periods of air pollution in Los Angeles. And, and what you see is a decrease over those time period so that those that grew up with the cleaner air had half of the number of kids with decreased lung function, under 80% of predicted values. Halved by, by that. I think that it's likely that that may be something that we will see with neurocognitive impacts if we could, it's more complicated to try to study. So this is about resilience. So I, this is a, a model or a communication tool the Frameworks Institute developed. And, and uh, it's just to say, okay, well, resilience has a lot of different inputs into it, okay? And, and, and you can think of it like a scale. And, you know, if the scale band balances to one side, you may end up with a negative outcome or a positive outcome. So, so you can add together these various factors, abuse, neglect, chemicals. So that's what we add to it. They, they, they talk about the, a lot of other things. I'm adding chemicals, and you can see why. I've just been talking about it. You, you can have things that support a positive outcome, opportunities for skill development, supportive relationships, things you're involved with your patients identifying early intervention. I mean, we're talking about early intervention here. That can have an, an impact, okay? So even in the presence of some negative factors, yes, you can have a positive outcome. It's also based on this fulcrum here. So every person is a little different. We come with different genetic makeup, and, and, and things can change where the fulcrum is so that that you know, lesser or more amount of weight on the side may, may, may drive it to a negative outcome or a, a positive outcome. Well, think about if you are exposed to lead very early in life, that moves your fulcrum. You know, then you're more, more susceptible. The same thing, you have you know, that enriched environment, you might, might you know, favor a, a, a positive outcome. So what, again, back to what are these things, you know, stressors that include finances, uh, built environment, uh, chemicals, education, social support, 
you know, a, a whole mishmash of, it's everything, you know. So we have in our society of individualism this idea that, that you know, positive outcomes are the result of people bootstrapping themselves up, you know. All you got to do is work hard enough, Dale Carnegie, you know, we're going to, you'll be a billionaire just like Trump, you know. And, uh, well, or that it's just a matter of having enough willpower. Grit is a popular one now. We're going to teach our kids grit. That's what's going to make the difference. You know, we're going to blame the victim, you know. So, or the idea that resilience has no limits. It doesn't matter how many hardships you have. You know, if you work hard enough, you're going to take care of it. The facts are that resilience is shaped by these powerful factors, including social, physical, environmental factors, and they're not easily overcome. Yes, some people overcome the worst of possible imaginable things. And usually I think you'll find that they have some mitigating factors somewhere in that, you know. We can help to strengthen resilience by ensuring that we provide a healthy environment, both for prenatally and in children. The stuff you try to do every day, you know. So this comes to the background. That's the background for what is environmental justice. So we had a slide in the morning about this, you know, a lot of things, the Lanterman Act coming out of the 1960s and the 70s, you know, uh, well, the, the environmental movement came out of that, and the environmental movement then combined really with the civil rights movement because there were communities that were highly impacted. This, it turns out the same communities that experience you know, economic problems and racism also are the communities that are much more likely to be next to a Superfund site or surrounded by freeways or, you know, all these kinds of things. So environmental justice was this idea that everybody, regardless of their background, deserves fair treatment and input and respect. And it, it, it started from an observation that Superfund sites were both more prevalent in lower socioeconomic and communities of color and also that they were waiting far, far longer to get cleanup. So California EPA has this program called Cal and Virus Screen. If you, it's actually now on the 3.0 just came out. But it's an, it's, a, it's an idea that to combine all of these different factors, so there's exposures to chemicals, uh, you know, things like being near cleanup sites, uh, sensitive populations, and these socioeconomic societal factors, including things like linguistic isolation. So they map these things overlaid for the entire state, and then they come up with, okay, well, here, these red communities are in the top 20% of, of exposures, both societal, social, and, and environmental. And what we see is that if you're white child, you, one in 14 are in one of those top 20%. But if you're Latino or African-American, one in three of these children in these communities. You know. So it's, there's a dramatic difference. And, and 
we see that that's actually representative of the United States in general. The, the US EPA has a similar kind of program. So just to say, you know, well, just one thing, here's a, a study on, on looking at schools. If you live downwind, close downwind to a school, you have more traffic-related air pollutants. And then this study sh showed that in, if your school was around these traffic-related air pollutants, you, you had increased risk of bronchitis and asthma. Um, well, if you, this is just looking at SES, as SES... Uh, well, this is, this is uh, you know, a marker of school lunches, so low SES. As you go to lower to higher traffic exposure, you get more and more kids that are low SES. But beyond that, this is going from low to high traffic exposure and then by ethnic groups, and you can see for, for the Latinos, the the uh, higher the traffic exposure, the higher the percentage of Latinos. Same thing for African-American children. Uh, and, and just the opposite for white children. And this has been correlated with uh, academic performance. So as you go, uh, if, you're, if you're go from low to high uh, uh, air pollution levels, academic performance decreases as well, and they try to control for everything. And trying to wrap up some of this, uh, this, is, this is from a s study of uh, early intervention. These are the, the 1960s, 70s, uh, uh, early childhood education studies, kind of the precursors or the beginnings of Head Start. And those at this one, which is was at Brookline, Massachusetts, being in an enriched environment, as this model's program was, ended up in increasing your your high school graduation, decreasing your your eventual involvement with juvenile detention, and and you know, et cetera. So this is your early childhood. This is well demonstrated to be cost effective. And what were they studying? I would say we don't exactly know. Is this SES? Those are also the same kids that were more likely to be exposed to high lead levels or any of these other things. So are you possibly treating those? There's been no intervention study to date yet that looks at the impact of, you know, the, all these kinds of special uh, thing programs you might have for children that are lead exposed to see does that alter the result. So uh, there are these, these, these critical windows. Exposures can be chemical, physical, social, historical. Low-income children, communities of color are disproportionately exposed to both the social stressors and to toxic environment. And it's really important, if you want to see the impact of things, you've got to address more than one of the multiple causes. So then, uh, what is, this is really trying to conclude, you know, what is somebody who's a health professional supposed to do? I know this is overwhelming. One, you know, Leslie and I work for these PACES. We, we not only do education, but we help people work through questions, you know. Um, sometimes there's simple answers, and there's a lot of material on our 
PACE website, which is down here somewhere, uh, including fact sheets and pesticides. What would be one thing to come out with? Integrated pest management that's trying to use less pesticide. doesn't say you wouldn't use any, but it's approaches to reduce pesticide use. You know, lead, you might want to be screening. Children with, it has been said that anybody with developmental disabilities really should get a lead test, you know. Uh, tobacco exposure, you want to, you know, that's pretty simple. We all know about what to do. Consumer products, here's a website, a couple, couple websites with information. One about cosmetics, which are significant exposure to endocrine-disrupting chemicals for young women who are likely to be getting pregnant. Um, and then the last thing, and you've got all this in your syllabus, but the story of health, that's, that's a continuing education program that we develop with a bunch of partners. Uh, you can get quite a few credits for doing it. We, it, it follows a family, different members of the family, uh, with different illnesses through the multiple kinds of things that might impact one. So there's a story about asthma, a child with asthma. There's a story about a child with learning disabilities and a child with leukemia. And we'll be releasing in the next few months uh, uh, one about infertility and reproductive health. And then other resources here. Uh, I'd throw in National Medical Legal Partnership. If you're not aware of it, that would be a good one because a lot of environmental health things turn out to be housing issues, just like other th things we've heard about today. Medical Legal Partnership, there are over 200 of them around the country where doctors and lawyers work together to help address because, you know, we, we can't do everything. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.